Hello, listeners. My name is Justin Reich, and I'm your host of The Glowworm, the podcast of the International Churchill Society. Thank you for joining me and our guest for this inaugural episode, which is titled The Revisionism of Sir Winston Churchill. If you're not yet a member of society, please do consider becoming one. We are reliant on your membership to bring all of our great events and content, including this new podcast. You can become a member of the society today by, jo- by going to winstonchurchill.org forward slash join. I'm thrilled to have our, as our first guest of the Glowworm podcast, author Andrew Roberts. As you may know, Andrew is the author of Churchill, Walking with Destiny, Napoleon, A Life, and many more titles. He has garnered so many accolades and distinctions that it may take me more than five minutes to read them. So I'll end this in his introduction by simply saying that he is an award-winning, universally respected author and commentator. How's that for an introduction, Andrew? Well, I'm not sure it's true. Um, the first thing, uh, Justin, it's very sweet of you, but uh, um, universally respected is, is certainly not true. There are an awful lot of people uh, who would uh, take you up on that. Uh, on that. Um, but we're going to be talking about those kind of people in the podcast, so I'm not going to preempt myself by... Uh, uh, by naming them. Yes, you know, maybe my next podcast will be the revisionism of Andrew Roberts as my next episode. <laughs> well, that would certainly take you 40 minutes. <laughs> I also forgot to mention that Andrew is a member of the Society's Board of Directors, is also a member of the Society's International Council. So this man really knows his Churchill. Well, so, can I butt in again? Can I butt in of again? Course. Sorry, Justin, and say, look, um, I'm not just a member of these uh, councils. I love them. I think the International Churchill Society does a fantastic job. It really does. I've been involved in it now for years. Frankly, I'm you know, quite busy writing books. I wouldn't uh, give up my time um, unless I thought something was really worthwhile when it comes to um, Winston Churchill. And the ICS really is first class. It's just got so many scholars. It's got so much enthusiasm it puts on so many great events the conference is always a complete delight there's a sort of you know a family of uh, of people frankly who um including the actual church family itself yeah. which are great and hugely supportive but they're a family of um of people who do not for one minute none of them have ever for one minute doubted that Winston Churchill made blunder after blunder, mistake after mistake. You know, it was he, his, um, uh, his story is not one of just success to success to success. And nobody has ever pretended that it was. So I think it's very important to appreciate that one of the strengths really of the International Churchill Society is that it is genuinely objective about Winston Churchill and his legacy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was much more than the 50 pounds that I, I paid him to say. So I greatly appreciate that those comments, Andrew. And as you know, I completely agree with you. Um, so I titled this podcast, this inaugural podcast, The Revisionism of Sir Winston Churchill. You have spent many, many decades de- debunking the myths about Sir Winston, you know, myths that include this incredible superhuman ability to create a famine in Bengal, you know, by one person to his rampant racism that is seen through and through with his writings, his his speeches, you know, and by the way, the man was uh, basically quoted for the 70 years of his life. So your work has been an overdrive during the past two years 
as these accusations are being leveled at him again from all sorts of camps, authors, academics, students, et cetera. Andrew, can you tell us what's going on here? You know, why are these myths coming back to the surface, you know, with our historical conversations around Churchill's legacy? Well, that's it's, it's such a great um, question, Dustin. Look, I'm not going to personalize this. I really don't want to go into the individuals involved. If I can um, take them at their um, word and really engage on their um, uh, on their terms, which is the ideological terms, frankly, again and again with uh, with Churchill's attraction um, and myth making. Um, I see it in, uh, in a, a series of things, really. The first one, um, just to uh, look at the most recent ones, you mentioned the Bengal famine and the, and the racism, uh, and there are others, um, are um, tied up with the whole concept of, of race, and especially the way in which it's dealt with in the um, post-Black Lives Matter, um, um, what's the best word, phenomenon. Um, and, and in a sense, you know, one can understand why a movement like Black Lives Matter would want to um, draw history in as much as possible to, uh, to justify its, um, its present day um, preoccupations. But again and again, the actual history that they use just simply does not, um, in, in terms of sheer evidence, support their view. You mentioned the Bengal famine, so let's start with that. Um, you know, the Bengal famine started in 1942 with a horrific uh, cyclone, um, a hurricane, as you call them in the States, you know, cyclone in the, in yeah. the east. And um, it knocked out the, and it's not unknown, they, there were cyclones in Bel- Bengal, there have been cyclones in Bengal for hundreds of years. But yeah, you would think, one, you know, at the creation of Earth, cyclones happen. This one in particular um, knocked out the, uh, the rail and the road um, networks that brought um, grain and food and, and relief into Bengal. And at the same time, tragically, um, and as you say, this has been going on for a long time, but in the past, the British Empire in India had managed to deal with this um, not least by bringing grain in um, through the ports of, uh, of Bengal, principally, of course, Calcutta. And, uh, and you couldn't do that, unfortunately, in 1942 and 1943, because the Japanese who had invaded um, nearly one-eighth of the world's um, surface in December 1941 onwards um, made it impossible. So you had uh, Japanese submarines operating in the Bay of Bengal. Actually, you know, some of the cities in eastern uh, India had been shelled as recently as the April of 1942. And it was just impossible for the British Empire, however much it wanted to, to, um, to deal with the Bengal famine in the same way as it would have in peacetime circumstances. And yet, again and again, um, the whole sort of aspect, this whole military aspect of the Second World War is, is sort of not mentioned in the um, myths that have built up about Churchill's supposed um, desire to make the Bengal famine as bad as possible and to kill as many people as possible. Now, as it is, 
It's an absolute tragedy that three and a half million or so Bengalis uh, should have died from this. But, um, and, and some historians claim more. Um, but uh, it really is completely wrong to think that the Prime Minister of Britain at the time uh, wanted to um, either ignore it or to make it worse. And the worst thing is, really, is that we have documents, uh, many, many of them, uh, from Winston Churchill himself to the Viceroy of India, talking about, um, about trying to alleviate the famine. We have hundreds of thousands of tons of, of uh, barley, but also other uh, cereals and grains that were rushed to Bengal. We have uh, letters to President Roosevelt and to the prime ministers of Australia and New Zealand in asking them to help out with the Bengal famine. So it strikes me that the accusations that are made are not, um, uh, first of all, fair or true, but also must come from some kind of other psychopathology or politics, which really has got a lot more to do with modern day obsessions over, uh, over racism than, um, than the actual factors of what was happening on the ground in Bengal in, in 1942 and 1943. And Andrew, to your point of these, what historians would call primary source documents, um, allow me to read you a directive to the viceroy designate from the war cabinet, initial WSC, of course, Winston Spencer Churchill. This is 8th October 1943. So he, he in, in this document says, quote, every effort must be made, even by the diversion of shipping urgently needed for war purposes to deal with local shortages, referring to the grain shortages. But besides this, the prevention of the hoarding of grain for a better market and the fair distribution of foodstuffs between town and country are of the utmost consequence. That surely sounds like to me that he cares and that he's uh, from his position as prime minister, you know, with a bunch of other things on the stove heating up, is attempting to do all that he can from thousands of miles away to assist with this grain shortage well certainly i mean if you're a uh, if you're the kind of winston churchill that um that some people have been making out this sort of maddened racist who wants to kill as many uh, bengalis as possible and hates everybody who's non-white and all of these kinds of absurd myths if he was such a person he wouldn't be going around sending messages like that to the uh, to the viceroy and you know the, the one you've quoted is is an extremely uh, uh, good one but there are many others you know mm -hmm. and not just to the viceroy as i mentioned earlier there to other world leaders um so you know just on the on the grounds of the evidence alone the sense that uh, that churchill you know recognized that something needed to be done as soon as possible um is a very powerful one. And you get it not just from these documents, but actually from what happened, from what, what you know, did take place on the ground. So uh, I don't know. I, I, what I have to do, therefore, is to, is to just be rational and logical about it and to assume that really the, um, the accusations made against uh, Churchill by people are not truly based on, um, on evidence, but they're based on political prejudices and political um, 
views and political preoccupations that are um, current in today's uh, politics rather than yesterday's history. And to your point about um, 1942-1943, Andrew, I'm not sure if you were alive then, but there were no iPhones back then. There was no GPS system. Uh, I believe Winston Churchill simply couldn't pick up a phone and, and call Admiral Wavell and say, oh, oh, will you please just you know, divert the shipping? I mean, from hundreds or tens of thousands of miles away during a war, um, the technological advances that this generation and, and generations of, you know, before it come to take for granted just simply didn't exist. And well, I'm very, I'm very concerned that you don't know whether or not I was uh, around in uh, 1943. <laughs> I mean, the fact that I was born in 1963. So I must look an awful lot older than, um, <laughs> than I genuinely am. But, um, but no, you're right, of course. I mean, and this, this is a very interesting aspect of it, of course. If we had iPhones in 1943, um, I suspect that it would have altered the war in the East um, very significantly. You know, we were obviously fighting against the Japanese up in, uh, up in Burma and uh, in um, some incredibly hard-fought battles in, the, in early 1944, like Kohima and Imphal. Um, but at the same time, if uh, we had seen these um, terrible images on Instagram and on TikTok and on Twitter and so on of the uh, of the Bengal famine, maybe there would have been a much more um, widespread you know, public mood to um, uh, to try to alleviate it back in in 1943. But um, but it was ever thus, you know, I mean, I think you could say that pretty much about the Roman Empire or about, uh, you know, ancient Greece. If, if, if there had been inventions of, uh, of technology and communication that, um, that didn't exist, if they had existed, how would history have been different? It's a fun parlor game. You know, we, <laughs> we could all have, have fun uh, discussing that. But, um, but I think, again, again, really, you've just got to go back to the the true evidence and to see what genuinely uh, happened and what was possible as well. And that's the other thing, you know, if you can't get great um, uh, ships into these harbours, if railways and, uh, and roads have been annihilated, um, then how physically do you genuinely help the people on the ground? And I think it's really important to remember that, and this is borne out through many other uh, still controversial, I wouldn't say controversial, but, but historical moments that are still talked about today um, with generations being removed from these moments from World War II, veterans dying, people who were just alive during the time, no longer alive now. It, it's hard to convince generations as time moves on about the reality of that time. There was no UNICEF to go deliver grain. There was no overarching international body to mediate between a, a world, literal world war. And you're right, the Bengal was overrun by a, a you know, a, a, a tyrannical empire that that killed all in its wake. Sorry, no, but Burma was. 
Burma, and, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, Burma was yes, absolutely, and, and and not just Burma. I mean, remember also Thailand um, and uh, Singapore, um, Malaya, and, and, and yeah. Malaya exactly. I mean, these are the places in the past which produced the grain that the British Empire was able to buy in order to alleviate uh, famines. And so, you know, if they're under the control of the Japanese, who clearly aren't going to give you or sell you any uh, grain uh, themselves, then the places that in the old days were uh, able to sort of step forward simply aren't going to be able to. There was also, and this is, I mean, this is like getting slightly technical, there was we, um, the British Empire had uh, devolved quite a lot of power to the local provincial governments in, um, uh, since the 1930s. And a lot of them were frankly not willing to give up their own grain to, um, to Bengal. And there were, there were plenty of laws that uh, you can argue the British Empire ought to have changed to have um, brought down the price of grain um, and to have intervened more. In a way that they didn't. But again, this is the Viceroy's job. You know, this is this is Lord Wavell's um, preoccupation, and not Winston Churchill, who is back in London, uh, many so, sorry, several thousands of miles away, um, uh, trying to uh, run a w- world war day to day. And um, and frankly, you know, uh, in history, it's 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 very often easy to forget that there were levels of um, of responsibility and communication mm-hmm. that um, that didn't go straight to the top man all the time in the same way that they do today. You know, today um, you can be pretty sure that uh, sitting in the Situation Room, for example, President Biden it is responsible ultimately for the um, I don't know um, the evacuation from from Kabul, for example, um, because ultimately he is seeing what's going on. That is certainly not the case. With Winston Churchill and the uh, Bengal famine um, 80 years ago. And so moving on to a question about, so moving on from the Bengal famine, which I I appreciated we discussed initially. um, It seems like since Winston Churchill was buried at Bladen in, in 1965, and even before while he was alive, the revisionism kicked in, you know, just kicked into gear. It seems like the moment they, they put, you know, the final, the final uh, heaps of sod onto his, onto his grave, the revisionism, or I, or I, or I would say the alternative history, if you will, started. And from an American's point of view, for those listeners who don't know, I'm, I'm an American, uh, the International Church Society's office is in Washington, DC. Andrew is an Englishman and lives in London, it seems like this revisionism has different levels on, on different sides of the pond. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would. I would say overall um, that we, although there is a, a, a strong sense of uh, revisionism, Churchill revisionism in uh, the United Kingdom, um, uh, it is something, and it has, as you say, been around since 1965 and indeed before 1965. In, um, in Britain, there is a political element to it because, of course, he was a Conservative Prime Minister, um, especially the um, uh, 1940 to 45 period is a particularly powerful one for, um, 
for Britain. It's uh, full of historical myths. It's full of national um, uh, pride and things that uh, that have very powerful political overtones even to this day. And so, um, on this side of the Atlantic, you know, it's perfectly understandable that um, people of different uh, political views than the Tory one should want to. Um, question whether or not Winston Churchill was um, was right about those things. Plus, you also have a, um, uh, frankly, a hagiography that had been taking place in the 1950s and early 60s, in which, you know, Churchill could do no wrong. Uh, there were there were books worshipping Winston Churchill and saying, saying he was he was an absolute sort of, you know, political god who got absolutely everything right all his uh, all his life. Very few of them, actually, far fewer than we think. But there was there was a um, a sort of Churchill worship that uh, that went on, which quite rightly did require a um, revision revision to it. And then you've also got to remember the fact that, in a sense, all history is revisionism. Yes. You know, every every generation is revising the beliefs and the assumptions of uh, historical assumptions of every previous generation. And that's a good thing. That's extremely healthy. That's something that you couldn't stop if you wanted to, and you shouldn't want to try to stop anyhow. So, you know, it's not always wrong to, um, by any means, to to look at um, these great events again with a fresh eye. What I, and the only thing, the only thing that I complain about is that you've got to use the evidence. You've got to go back to what you can prove. You've got to use that kind of sort of mouse, uh, that kind of uh, rationality, I suppose, that, um, that uh, makes you feel really, is this, is this likely? And, um, and I, in many ways, that's all that a historian can ever do, is just, is just to sort of have that little nugget in the brain saying, is this likely to have happened? And, um, and you know, when one reads about Winston Churchill wanting to kill millions upon millions of Bengalis to go back to that particular um, that particular incident, the fact is, you know, that you you don't get those alarm bells ringing if you're a sensible and serious mm-hmm. and substantial um, uh, person who believes in evidence. You just don't. It's just not there. Um, and uh, and so it, I think it's worthwhile there to look at those historians who are claiming that he was a genocidal maniac and a war criminal and all of those other things that have been, he's been accused of being uh, and to wonder where on earth they're, they're coming from. Or, or one of my favorites, that he was a firm believer in eugenics. And even though, as we discussed early on, Andrew, the man lived his life by his pen and in the papers and, and being quoted, yeah, he, he discussed eugenics for one hot minute and then said, well, you know, this is actually a pretty bad idea. Well, yeah, well I mean, of course, and he was also um, the Home Secretary. And so he was in the key position. If we were going to have um, a eugenicist um, uh, regime, he'd have been the person to imp- have imposed it. And and again, again, you know, he did argue about uh, people who were in, in, in the horrible phraseology of the day, congenital idiots, um, and the idea of preventing them from um, being able to have children and so on. Um, you know, 
that's what the eugenics uh, movement was discussing. And that's what some people like H.G. Wells and um, the Webbs, you know, very um, advanced socialist thinkers. I think George Bernard Shaw was involved in the eugenics movement as well. Um, this was not a right versus left thing uh, by any means. Um, but but had, um, had Churchill been a uh, sort of convinced eugenicist, he'd have done something about it. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he didn't. There is no, um, there's no sort of um, act of parliament or anything like that, that this, uh, this very powerful and very um, uh, impressive Home Secretary ever put into operation in the eugenics field. So, so again, you know, I, I think it's very important to go back to the, um, the, the evidence and also this, this sort of historical sense that I was trying to talk about earlier about whether or not it, um, it feels right. So before we get into a, a question that I, I, I know you'll have a great answer to or a very thoughtful answer to, allow me to read you one of my favorite Churchill quotes uh, discussing history. This is, as you know, uh, as Andrew knows, but for listeners who don't know, this was during his eulogy to Neville Chamberlain. He said, quote, history with its flickering lamp stumbles along the trail of the past, trying to reconstruct its scenes, to revive its echoes, enkindle with pale gleams the passion of former days, end quote. So even he himself understands that history is at best an amalgamation of facts and anecdotes laid across greater socioeconomic political trends at the time. Well, he was making that speech, of course, also in November 1940, and it's the the eulogy, as you mentioned, to uh, Neville Chamberlain, his political opponent, and later his political um, ally. Uh, It was made in a freezing cold uh, Westminster Abbey because they'd had to take all the beautiful stained glass windows out because they feared that they would be bombed out, which they would have been had they not uh, taken them away. And so it was completely freezing and there was snow on the on the ground outside. And he gave this speech, which for my money is in the top three or four Winston Churchill speeches of all time. Uh, and you gave us three sentences of it. Sentences, by the way, that I've always tried to memorise. And because of the adjectives uh, there, I've never really been able to. I'd love to be able to just sort of come out with those uh, three sentences and more. Because they then goes on to say, and if you've got it in front of you, please do quote it. Mm-hmm. But, I, mm-hmm. but if not, um, I'll try. It, it, he then goes on to say, what is the work of all this? And he, uh, and he argues that um, it's only um, by, the, uh, by the statesman through the sort of moral exercise of his, uh, of his judgments that he can, he can protect his conscience. And, um, and in that, you really do see uh, the, the great Churchill, the great Winston Churchill, um, who is somebody who is wrestling with the um, the a horrible fact that his um, his 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 now ally, um, previous enemy, is dead. Mm-hmm. He's standing there in Westminster Abbey talking about him. He could have um, denounced him, although politically that would have been a very stupid thing to have done, um, because there were so many Chamberlainites in the House of Commons. And instead, he writes this almost Shakespearean eulogy of utter beauty 
about the morality of statesmanship. And, um, and as I say, it's, it's worth reading. The whole speech is very much worth yeah. reading. But those two paragraphs are, are ones that, um, that people should, I think, go back to again and again. I will do the listeners a favor. I'll read those final sentences. So he says, quote, what is the worth of all of this? The only guide to a man is his conscience. The only shield to his memory is the rectitude and sincerity of his actions. It is very imprudent to walk through life without this shield because we are so often mocked by the failure of our hopes and the upsetting of our calculations. But with this shield, however the fates may play, we march always in the ranks of honor. And, and, and Churchill, Brilliant. He, he marched, he, it's wonderful stuff. He, he uh, marches there still because, um, uh, as those lines imply, um, he, uh, the, the, the fates played in his career more than any other single British statesman. Um, backwards and forwards, he was up and down, he was in, he was out. He was, uh, I mean, nobody has suffered the kind of reversals of fortune um, in British politics that he has. Uh, and, uh, and yet th- that shield that he had, the rectitude uh, and his honour, was enough to, um, to protect him. And you know, uh, that's why, in a sense, it's, it's easy for somebody like me who spent, um, as you kindly mentioned, 30 years writing about uh, Winston Churchill, to get angry with some of these people who uh, try to imply that honour didn't matter to him, that he was just a opportunist who he w- was able to, willing to use any circumstance to try to get on and become um, prime minister. You know, uh, that is, I don't think that gets to the, to the real Churchill at all. And to, and to denigrate him in the, that way is, um, is, is, is truly sort of wrong. Um, moving on to this question, and I will say in, in unlikely comparisons in history, which is a, a, fun, a fun segment I like to host on this new podcast. This is the first one. Speaking of cold speeches, or speeches in the cold, we're, I think we're all grateful that Sir Winston Churchill did not have the same fate as our short-lived American president, William Henry Harrison, who unfortunately passed away from pneumonia after giving his inaugural speech in the cold without an overcoat. So maybe Churchill put his overcoat on after reading his, his sad fate. Um, social media, Andrew, you're, you have Twitter, you're active. I haven't seen you get in any Twitter fights. But my question for you is, as, as a professional historian who, as you just said, spends, has spent decades, you know, going to archives, reading boring, you know, diaries for that little nugget. Is social media destroying a human's ability to have complex thinking, nuanced, complex thinking about a very complex man or situation? If you haven't detected in my voice, I firmly believe it is. But how, what do you think? The what is the effect of social media? Um, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not convinced. You're right. Um, I use it. Uh, I have got involved in a couple of um, sort of side swipes, I suppose. Not. Uh, not these long um, struggles because, uh, frankly, um, it just takes up so much time if you if you do that. But I but I do use it to make my point of view. What I don't then do 
is to try to argue against every troll who's who's sitting in his um, in his you know, bedroom. <laughs> um, I've, um, I, I I try and then go on and, and write another book and and use social media to uh, promote it. But um, but I, I, you're really, I suppose, um, suggesting that because the um, 280 characters or fewer is the maximum that you can. Uh, make a political point that you're not going to get into some uh, deep aristotelian or socratic um discussion over uh, over the meaning of life and of course that's true but um it, i think it depends on what you use um social media for if you mo- if you use it in order to present urls to longer pieces mm. to more uh, thoughtful arguments uh, perhaps to a podcast like this, which I will be putting on my, you know, LinkedIn and Brilliant. Facebook and and Twitter and so on, and therefore people can um, uh, can access them. I, then 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 good on it. You know, I, I think I think we would all. <laughs> my friend Neil Ferguson described Twitter as the universal lavatory wall, and it's true. <laughs> if you allow um, yourself to get into uh, you know, pissing matches with skunks, then it's only your own stupid fault. Um, and it obviously means that you've got too much time on your hands. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I, I, I'm glad you take a more nuanced view than I do in terms of, um, in terms of social media. So I'd like to, you know, maybe we'll round out this conversation. Can I say one other, sorry, yeah, can please. I just start in and say one other thing, uh, Justin? Which is about the, the, this uh, idea that uh, the Twitter and social media have um, um, created a kind of global um, shortening of the attention span, yeah. and um, I, I'm wondering whether that's true as well because I noticed that um, when one goes to uh, give talks or speeches, which I do an awful lot, I've got, uh, I think, over the next. Uh, over the next in, in October and November alone, I'm going to be giving 67 speeches. Oh my and, God. Just just in those two, uh, and that doesn't t- take into account podcasts or 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 of course. the um, over the internet. And so I'm constantly doing uh, this, and I much enjoy it. I wouldn't do it otherwise. But you know, I find that we have a conversation of uh, 30 or 40 minutes, like we're having uh, at a literary festival. You'll then have an extra 20. Or thirty minutes to ask what the um, public think, and very often, actually, that's the most fun bit for someone like me because you know I know what I think. I, the interesting thing is to interact with what uh, other people are, are saying, and um, and you know, and so that's an hour of somebody's life that they've um, that they've consciously decided that they are interested enough in Winston Churchill or in my new book George the Third or whatever it happens to be, and you know. That, that is no sign of um, contracting attention span. You know, I, 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 I still think that uh, there are an awful lot of people who are either clever enough or just curious enough or interested enough, but usually clever enough, frankly, to uh, commit a significant amount of their day to thinking about important subjects. I agree, but I, here's my, here's my um, retort. It takes somebody a millisecond to hit the retweet button on Winston Churchill hates Indians. 
by some Joe Schmo who has no idea what he's talking about. And that tweet gets retweeted and that, you know, and so it, it, it's this self perpetuating um, environment where, as you know, in social media, you control what you follow and see. So Andrew, you bring up the point, which I completely agree with you. You like to engage with people who may have a different opinion than you, who may see things differently because you learn from that engagement and experience. Well, what social media has done is that it has, it, it has cocooned you in, a, in the womb of everything that you believe in. And if there's somebody pops up into that, you know, bubble of yours that says, Hey, Oh, by the way, you know, actually a little more nuanced than that. And Churchill actually, actually advocated for Indian independence, but you know, he was, he wanted to make sure that the country didn't turn into complete warfare, which it actually did when it, when it was in, gained independence and separated that person's deleted and they're just poof out of existence. So my biggest fear is that any sort of in, in, you know, unfactual point of view or hot take or whatever in, you know, pre-social media, if you had that platform, whether it was at a speak, a speech or a conference or whatever, you, you would probably have someone challenge you and there would be some sort of exchange of clever thoughts, but in social media, for the most part, that doesn't happen. And that's where my, you know, my biggest concern is. No, that's fair. Of course, that's fair. Um, my, my sense is that, however, that um, just because somebody retweets something, it doesn't make anybody else um, think that that thing is more likely to be true. Fair enough. No, I completely agree with that. Um, so let's, uh, let's, let's end this great conversation um, with an article I believe you sent me, or I believe Randolph Churchill shared, um, from the eye from uh, Ian Ian Burrell in the eye. Do you remember this? Just a couple of days yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah. No, I read that piece. Yeah, it was a very and, interesting piece. And and you know he says, <laughs> I I took exception with this as well. But he says, "quote If we want to understand our past, we should not judge him, i.e., Churchill, on today's values, but nor should we ignore his flaws. He was an amazingly complex human being, brave, generous, brilliant with words, a self-glorifying charlatan, which <laughs> I that's a bit harsh." and an insufferable egotist. Um, that seems like a nuanced point of view. And I, as well, a, I mean, we, just the, the, as you pointed out, the self-publicizing um, charlatan. First of all, all politicians are self-publicizing. You don't get to be a front page, um, uh, sorry, frontline politician, unless you publicize the things that you're saying. There's absolutely nothing wrong in politics with trying to, uh, to you know, get your message across. But charlatan, charlatan, <laughs> really? I mean, a charlatan is a sort of snake oil salesman. A charlatan is somebody who uh, tells lies uh, deliberately. A charlatan is somebody who is lightweight and, and uh, fraudulent. You know, Winston Churchill, the winner of the Nobel Prize, the author of 37 books, Prime Minister of Britain, uh, not once but twice. <laughs> it's an extraordinary remark to make about this, uh, this incredible man. I know that went that went unchallenged by but his the answer. rest of but the rest of that article actually as and one has to remember also that uh, Ian is a uh, man who comes from the left. Uh, the Eye is a is a you know left wing newspaper. Um, overall, that was I thought, uh, except for the Charlton remark, a truly <laughs> impressive um, piece of 
sort of re-revisionism, as it were. You know, he he was thoughtful, he was um, uh, combative, and um, I thought it was one of the best pieces I've read from that side of politics for, for many a long year. And you've done research on many great statesmen. Uh, your upcoming book is on George III. Your previous book, which, if I can admit on this podcast, I loved loved napoleon i read that twice and i've read that on this podcast i I thought for a terrible (laughs) moment you were going to say i'd I'd like to admit on this podcast i've never read no no (laughs) no i wouldn't which i wouldn't have been terribly (laughs) amused or impressed by but nonetheless thank you yeah of course yeah you can admit anything if it's to do with praising uh, one of my books uh, justin i've only (laughs) i've only read walking with destiny once but i've read napoleon twice and I, i i think it's brilliant but the question is, you've so you've studied great statesmen. The myths of Napoleon are still around today. The myths of Churchill are still around today. The myths of X, Y, and Z, George Washington are still around today. As a historian, when you want to undertake historical analysis and research, what do you do with those myths? You know, do, do you, when, meaning when you encounter them, like you said, you know, a, a historian would say, no, there's nothing to this claim, you know, earlier in the podcast you know, the evidence, evidence just doesn't, just doesn't, you know, just doesn't support it. But when you're doing your research and you come across these things, whether they're from, um, you know, contemporaries of this person who was jealous of them and wanted to spread lies. I'm reading this great book by Larry Tai about um, Joseph McCarthy. And he spends the first, the first chapter actually debunking myths, bad myths about Joseph McCarthy. It's a brilliant way to open a book. But as a historian, do you feel the need to address these myths or do you just say, you know what, these are going to never, they're never going to die because they're, you know, stupid little snippets that people trot out. Like what's one about Napoleon? Uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's a million of them. Or do you try to take them head on? Um, oh no, you definitely have to take them head on. Of course you do because, because uh, people know about them and uh, you don't spend a huge amount of time over the more ridiculous and stupid ones. You know, um, I was, uh, uh, amused a few years ago when I saw a, a, ty- a newspaper um, article about Churchill entitled "Churchill was a non-smoker," and uh, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 ha- I have to say I didn't sort of engage massively in in trying to uh, knock that um, myth on the head, owing to the fact that uh, he bought one hundred sixty thousand cigars, uh, smoked one hundred sixty thousand cigars in his life, so. Uh, so it wasn't too necessary <laughs> to have a go at that one, but um, but uh, and there are others that that are, are sort of silly and they're in cyberspace and uh, and frankly don't um, require too much uh, uh, space. But something serious, something important, something that's going to live and already has lived for years. Something like the one that we talked about earlier, the uh, the Bengal famine. I devoted six pages of my biography of uh, of Churchill. Um, to um, to looking into that myth and to debunking it and to uh, putting the the true facts out there because people who um, still read the book hopefully they will you know after I'm dead um, uh, if that if that myth is still around they're going to need ammunition to um, defend Churchill's reputation on that subject equally on the other side. Yeah, there are plenty of things that Churchill got wildly wrong. He got the abdication crisis wrong and the gold standard and the um, 
black and tans, you name it, you know, one mistake after another. And, and I give a lot of evidence in that book about how he got those things wrong. And so, you know, if you're writing what you hope to be something that's going to last, an objective book, um, then you, you, of course, give, give both sides of the story. Well, uh, Andrew, I think as much as the myths around Churchill anger me and frustrate me, they do provide continual learning opportunities, just like you've discussed. They provide the opportunity to actually say, no, uh, you know, Mr. and Mrs., that's not true. And here are the resources that you can, that you can, you know, peruse to understand that. So they do, it's like with, they give this opportunity for discussion about Winston Churchill, which is always a great opportunity. It's like his misquotes, you know, he's misquoted all the time. And I used to, I used to correct people, but with, for the ones that are, you know, harmless, I actually encourage them because it, I say, you know, and you can go to winstonchurchill.org, you can pick up Andrew Roberts book and you can find many more of those wonderful quotes about Winston Churchill. So I guess it does provide an opportunity for discussion. Well, my, my sense is that you go to uh, Richard Langworth's wonderful Churchill in his own words, which yes. is going to come out, a, there's going to be a new edition of that uh, with an extra um, several hundred uh, Churchill quotes in it. And, you know, if it's in there, then, then Richard will have uh, stated it. If it's in the Apocrypha, uh, he'll have stated that too. And there are chapters on red herrings that he has, yes. famous things, you know, uh, you know, if you're going through hell, keep going, for example. Churchill never said it. And uh, and you can see that. And they, there's, a, there's a very good sort of uh, index there that will explain to you what Churchill did and didn't say. Yeah, I actually use his, I have the Kindle version and I, I will, it's Kindle searchable on your laptop. So I actually search quotes uh, yeah. on, in his yeah. book. And it's, it's a brilliant resource for sure. Um, Andrew, I appreciate your time. Listeners, if you do not know yet, Andrew has a new book coming out, George III. That, that's published end of this month? Uh, yes, absolutely. At the uh, end, of, uh, end of October. Wonderful. And Andrew will also be joining us October 7th through 9th for uh, the 38th International Churchill Conference. You can learn, learn more at winstonchurchill.org. He'll be giving the inaugural Poss, Steve and Jane Poss uh, family lecture. And Andrew, it is always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, you can knock this off your list of 67 speeches that you're giving for the next two months. So I no, 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 I can't. I wish I could, <laughs> but unfortunately I can't. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed, Justin. I've enjoyed right. it uh, immensely. Take care, Andrew. Bye.